Hello, and welcome to We Blame Our Shelves, a podcast where two librarians discuss books, movies, games, you know, anything you can find on your shelf. Um, I pronounce it cuisine art, not cuisine art, because I'm not a monster. James Pugh, a librarian in training, and I am joined by... I am the year-old moldy french fry stuck under your car seat, Dan Major. <laughs> uh, so what are we talking about this time, Dan? Uh, food lit. Food lit. Food lit. It's November. Thanksgiving's coming up. Um, and I have, over the past couple of years, gotten really into what I've recently discovered they called food lit. There's like all, you know, all those like subgenres yeah. of, yeah. I just um, discovered um, with my book club, I was like, you know, anytime there's like a murder at Cambridge <laughs> University or Harvard, they, they call that like mystery at the... Uh, dark Academia. And okay. I'm like, okay, I like Dark Academia books, and I like Food Lit. Um, so I'm excited to talk about it this week. And we actually have our second guest, special guest on the podcast. Um, I'm very excited to introduce to everybody uh, Julie McLoon. She is the curator for the Janice Bluestein Longoni Cur- Culinary Archive at the University of Michigan. So we're going to talk to her today about uh, what that entails, a little bit of cookbooks, some more food lit. So welcome, Julie. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here today. I've been uh, curating the Longoni Archive um, since 2015, along with juggling some of our other collections like children's literature and some literary and theater archives. Um, and before I came to Michigan, I actually uh, had was lucky enough to curate another culinary collection at the University of Texas at San Antonio. And their focus is Mexican uh, cookbooks, which was an amazing culinary education for a girl originally from Indiana. Um, And I'm always (laughs) excited to talk about culinary history. Awesome. Very cool. What what is your, like, educational background? Like, how did you fall into this kind of specialty? Yeah, so my my educational background is actually in cultural anthropology. So I have a master's in cultural anthropology. And my... My master's research was actually in community forestry in Mexico, but more broadly, it was about how humans relate to their environment. Um, And food plays a a pretty big part in that. So I've also always been a lifelong lover of cooking and baking. And I attended graduate school for library science at the University of Iowa, uh, which has an absolutely excellent uh, cookbook collection, the Dathmeri Culinary Archive. And I was lucky enough to get to do some work with that. So that led me here. Awesome. So... Um, on the subject of food lit, um, James, what would you your your personal broad definition of food lit? Because we're not talking like an academic categorization. We're talking about like does it count or does it not count? It's more of an informal categorization. I would I would say I would say anything that um, where food is the central. I'm not even going to call it character, but everything is revolved around food. Like the book is about a chef, or the book mm-hmm. is about um, somebody who works at a restaurant. Um, what comes to mind is a lot of um, like the travel food uh, bio- biographies. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, like um, what uh, Anthony Bourdain. But beyond him too, like Eat, Pray, Love, like oh yeah, <laughs> all yeah. that stuff. Where it's like I, eat, um, Julie and Julia. Um, Ju- oh, Julie, Julie Powell. Yeah. Oh, you. You know what? You emailed me about that, and I never I answered did. you. Um, the Julie from Julie and Julia actually just passed away about two weeks ago, and yeah. she, was, she was still very young, but that was a surprise. That was actually, I, I enjoyed that movie more than I should have. <laughs> the um, book was really good. Um, but anyway, that's what I think of when I think of Food Lit. 
Yeah, and I I mean the the as far as like food lit authors that jump to mind to me, um I say Ruth Reichel. I've heard her say Ruth Reichel and Ruth Reichel. I've heard people on the radio say Reichel and Reichel. I always say Reichel. Um, but Ruth Reichel um, was the editor for Gourmet Magazine. She was a food critic. She's written fiction and nonfiction books. I've read, I think, all but one of them. She has like maybe six books out. Um, and consistently enjoyable, great sense of humor. And her descriptions of food, like, you know, sometime, and we'll we'll talk about like food in animation a little oh, later yeah. on too. And like it just makes you so hungry. And when she in particular <laughs> describes food, it's in a way that just like resonates with me <laughs> in the best way possible. So, um, you know, and I, I definitely think um, fiction and nonfiction can fall under this food lit category. Um, Julie, how about you? Are there any authors, any specific titles that you really like reading that are food centric? Uh, there are actually. So one of the fantastic things about being a librarian at the university is that although I don't teach for credit classes, faculty and other instructors bring their classes to special collections and they also often share their syllabi. So I get great, great resources for my own reading. Um, so a couple that I, I read in the last couple of years is one called Stealing Buddha's Dinner by Beth Nguyen. And um, she grew up in Grand Rapids in the 1980s as a Vietnamese immigrant. And food plays a huge um is a huge part of this memoir, but it's also just really fascinating as a sort of regional regional autobiography. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and then Marcus Samuelson's Yes Chef um, is another fantastic oh. sort of in the, a little bit of the Anthony Bourdain, although a very different character sort of yes. biography yeah. <laughs> of a chef told through told through food. Um, and I really truly enjoyed that book a great deal as well. Yeah, we actually. Um... At the library, we do a uh, cookbook club, I think, every other month. They call it Cook the Book. Um, And we have, it's about 10 people that participate right now. And everybody checks out the same cookbook, prepares a dish, and then brings it to the library from the cookbook. And we did a Marcus Samuelson book not too long ago. Um, And I I got to run this book club for several months, um, but it's no longer assigned to me. But um, the librarian who runs it is going to be out so I am so excited <laughs> to be able to do it in December again because it's just like that is perfect timing. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> that was those are and it's usually held in the evening, and that is my favorite evening shift. Yeah, to I don't. Work. <laughs> I don't have to bring lunch or dinner to work. Yeah. Like there is a feast prepared yeah. by like ten to twenty people laid out in front of you. <laughs> so it's it's really cool. It's a fun potluck, and you get yeah. to sit and talk about food with people. So so let's let's talk about cookbooks. Um, so Julie. Is there like a history of cookbooks? Like how far back do cookbooks really go? Like when I think of a cookbook, I think of like 1600s. Do they go further back than that or? Pretty good estimate of a time. Yeah. So people are always sort of asking what is, what is the oldest? And the oldest is always a really hard question to answer because how many characteristics of a cookbook does it have to have before it's a cookbook? Um, so if we go back really far to just sort of like recipes you can actually go all the way to there's egyptian tombs that depict baking bread (gasps) and people have actually you know prepared bread based on (laughs) these depictions so arguably that's a recorded recipe that we're it's still possible to sort of follow today Hmm. um but in terms of cookbooks that we would walk up to and recognize as a book um and as a cookbook that's something that does more emerge in the renaissance period um 
you see, and as time goes on, they get closer and closer to what we expect to see. So there's a, a really famous manuscript um, recipe book called The Form of Curry, which actually translates as the method of cooking. So not curry as in curry powder. Oh. Um, and this was a 14th century collection of uh, medieval English recipes. And so that's sort of like for a court. So not everybody at that point is using written cookbooks to, to cook. Uh, most especially because literacy rates at that point in time are pretty mm -hmm. pretty low um, in most of most of Europe. Yeah, um, well, and I'd imagine among like household staff and everything, like a cookbook's not going to do because the people who are literate are the the owners of the yeah. home and the families, and they're not going to be exactly. I mean, that's another fascinating dimension. So actually the, the labor of cooking and the labor of domestic work is one of the things that fascinates me the most. And so throughout the history of cookbooks, you also have this disjuncture, right, between the people that the cookbook is written for and sold to and then the people actually doing the cooking. Um, now, with that said, estimating literacy rates is incredibly tricky because today we teach reading and writing together. And like in elementary school, you learn both at the same time. Um, historically, even going back a century, a couple centuries, let's say, um, it wasn't infrequent that someone could read but not write, but if they can't write, it's awfully hard for us to find it in the historical record. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, even so, literacy rates way, way lower. Um, so where you really see commercial cookbook publishing coming into its own is when those literacy rates start to go up um, in the 17th and especially in the 18th century. So the 18th century is really big for a couple of my areas I work in, both cookbooks and also children's literature, because you have this burgeoning middle class, this burgeoning um, group of readers who are um, able to have enough spare income to buy cookbooks and are really interested in doing so. Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting that you mentioned the form of curry because uh, do you listen or do you watch um, the YouTube channel Tasting History with Max Miller? Have you seen that? Um, I have heard of it. I have not seen it. He, uh, I'll have to look it up. He um, references the form of curry and he talks about um, uh, what's the other one? By, that Eliza Acton did. I have it written down here, um, and I, I just mentioned it a minute ago, too. But he, like, many recipes from the form of curry, and it's exciting when I'm like, I find someone who knows things about this niche that I'm really interested in and have the opportunity to talk to someone about it, so... Yeah, there's actually another, it's a blog called Cooking in the Archives, um, run by a couple of historians who do early modern recipes, um, and it's it's fantastic. My favorite post is from the time when they uh, tried to figure out how to make a fish egg custard. And, <laughs> that sounds very, <laughs> like, Victorian. <laughs> well, earlier than that, even, but oh, they, wow. they initially made it with salmon roe, and it was apparently pretty awful, but later discussion with chefs suggested it was probably freshwater fish eggs, which I guess are much more mild, and you're probably supposed to sort of, like, cook the eggs in the sort of milk mixture and then strain them out, so it'd be sort of just a mild-flavored custard. It Nonetheless, does, not one I'm going to try. It doesn't. No, yeah, no. It, it doesn't. Both of those things sound terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so cookbooks in general, the other thing I find really interesting about them is that looking at the history of how cookbooks is, are written is also a history of how do you figure out how to teach someone to do something when you're not there to show them, especially with something like cooking that is so physical. Mm, that, um, that's a good point. I like, never really imagine, thought of. Yes, try to imagine telling someone how to knead bread without being able to show them how to knead the bread or how the bread should feel when you're kneading it. And it's really very tricky. Yeah, and even now, like, you know, you follow a, a video of how to do it, but, like, the video doesn't really 
the on, the only real way to to learn it is like how does this dough feel in my hand like yeah. you, you know when it's right um and without the the physical experience of doing that like it, it is hard and <laughs> you read some of those old recipes and it's it's just like yeah incomprehensible to me a lot of the time cook until done yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. stellar instruction yes um yeah there's actually so one of the made really important early american cookbooks in the early 19th century was the virginia housewife by mary randolph and there's an ochre soup okra soup recipe in that book i often use as example an example in classes um because it's written as a paragraph, as many cookbooks of that time period were. It's not a list of ingredients and instructions. It's just a narrative paragraph. And if you follow it step by step, you're going to get to the last sentence, which says, serve with rice. So hopefully you read all of that and you started your <laughs> rice about 45 minutes ago. Yeah. You know what the, um, the benefit also, is, though? The benefit is, like, with a book like that, you don't have to scroll through all the ads and the stories about, like, oh, my daughter loves to eat these on a warm summer day. And, like, internet recipes are, are have their problems, too. Like, I was modern six... day has not solved all of these issues. I was six years old, <laughs> and it was the middle of winter when I had this first soup. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's emerging of genres, right? There's so many genres within cookbooks, and they're written for very different purposes and for very different audiences. So it's finding the one that matches up with what you need at that moment is, is always important. Um, so actually, since we're on the topic of historic cookbooks, um, I chose today to do a little bit of research on um, Eliza Acton and, uh, who was it, Mrs. Beaton. Um, so Eliza Acton, um, who I mentioned earlier, uh, the book that I was searching for earlier was Modern Cookery for Private Families. Um, and from all the sources I've read, and actually I, I did go through the cookbook in the um, in your archives, because um, you guys have a digital copy, which is great. Um, but uh, I, I thought it was really interesting because she does go through a lot of like very detailed... It, and from what I've read, it's the first step-by-step cookbook with moderately accurate measurements, um, and it's quite lengthy as well. Um, and then she goes into like household management and things like that too. Um, but she, Eliza Acton, had stated that um, uh, British cooking was falling behind the continent, and people were coming back from France and Italy. And Switzerland with all these, you know, they wanted this great food that they saw when they were traveling Europe. Um, and so she, you know, wrote this book for servants and cooks and things like that. And it was, it was, it's very similar to how cookbooks are written today, it seems like. Um, and then later, um, about 15 years later, um, Mrs. Beaton's book of household management came out. Uh, which was like a big commercial success, but it was also allegedly mostly plagiarized. Oh, no. Um, and Mrs. Beaton was kind of the, um, who's, uh, who is that Food Network personnel? Sandra Lee. Oh. Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Beaton kind of <laughs> strikes me as the Sandra Lee. She's like, oh, doesn't this canned ham on a paper plate look just divine? Like a little <laughs> bit less refined. A little bit more about being affordable, um, and Did, allegedly her recipes plagiarized and also 
significantly less accurate. Um, she recommends boiling pasta for about two hours. Um, she leaves <laughs> eggs out of cake recipes. It's just a little less well-researched, and they say she was not really all that much of a cook as she was a household manager, but this thousand-page book was mostly recipes. Um, and I like to look at it as like, Eliza Acton is Ina Garten. She's the classy one that we all love. Um, and Mrs. Beaton is Sandra Lee, who is just fine, but <laughs> not everybody's speed. Did, did she focus on the tablescape? Yeah. The t- <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sure this was Victorian era, so I'm sure oh, tablescapes were, were a big deal at the time. But I but, do love Mrs. Beaton's book of household management, though. It is a, a, a such an enormous uh, brick of a book. It really, really uh, makes a statement when you put that on, down on a table. How long, <laughs> how long is it, actually? Oh, gosh, I'd have to actually look at the page number. But I mean, it's definitely good four inches thick. Um, <laughs> I did. It said it was like it started out at a thousand pages and then just grew with each re-release and reprinting of it. So... I'm sure it's yes. uh, a monster now. <laughs> There's actually a, a fascinating popular biography I read several years ago. It's called The Short Life and Long Times of Mrs. Beaton. Mm-hmm. Because she actually died really, really young. But her husband's publishing empire continued uh, continued the book or continued to publish the book as Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management. Um, I always think it was sort of like Wikipedia for Victorians. So, you know, <laughs> the accuracy is so-so. It depends on the topic. Um, but she has all of these recipes. So if she's going to t- give you that recipe for uh, pork, then she's maybe going to have two pages about raising pigs. And maybe there's a little <laughs> engraving of a pig. <laughs> and so, um, but it is definitely, yeah, probably for a more middle-class audience than, than Acton's book. Um, and definitely taking advantage of that burgeoning Victorian desire to Victorian English desire to categorize the world, to be able to document and pin down the world, um, and to reproduce it from other sources and repackage it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you ever gone through a classic cookbook from like like a hundred plus years ago and tried to make one of the recipes at home? So um, not regularly or recently, because I have small children who usually keep me me running around very quickly. They're not going to want eel aspic Um, for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But actually, when I was when I was at UT San Antonio, I actually used to have a recipe blog for that cookbook collection. So I did a lot of cooking with that, although more of it was early to mid 20th century. I'm trying to think of what is the oldest recipe that I have reproduced. I've definitely done some cakes from the late 19th century. Hmm. And... Hmm. The thing about, again, those recipes often are not very detailed, Um, but if you do have the background knowledge for how a dish is made, then sort of like you can manage a bread recipe that doesn't tell you how to knead if you already know how to knead bread. If you already know what your approximate proportions need to be for a cake recipe, then you can sort of project backwards. Um, One of my favorite factoids about 19th century cakes is that we think of vanilla as the most basic flavor today. But vanilla really wasn't very common 150 years ago. Mm. Uh, so lemon cake would have sort of been your baseline basic cake that you were making. Interesting. That, that's fine with me. <laughs> <laughs> Lemon's a good flavor. Uh, so you brought up um, not if you don't know how to cook, then the older recipes are great. And the kind of cookbook that I picked out was How to Cook Everything by Mark Bittman, which I think is a great cookbook because it's kind of like this is literally how you boil an egg. This is. And it goes through the different ways to do that. It's like how to do this, how to do that. 
um, it kind of gets into the science of what's happening to the food while it's being cooked. When did cookbooks move from just recipe sharing to more of like a science experiment in the kitchen? Yeah, I think that's definitely something you're sort of seeing towards the mid to later 19th century, especially as you have the rise of the domestic science or home economics movement. Um, that's also when you start to see cooking schools. So you have these major figures like Maria Parloa and the Boston Cooking School. So the Boston Cooking School um, cookbook was an incredibly popular cookbook in the late 19th and early 20th century, but it was also an actual school. Um, and Fanny Farmer, who was president of that, didn't create, but she popularized the sort of standardized measurements that we use today in America. Um, and they, they, they were very focused on sort of understanding household, household um, management as a science, cooking as a science. And so you get much more of that sort of explanation. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, so the next part of the discussion today is we wanted to talk about food fiction a little bit, which is, you know, that I feel like that's the only two things I check out at work is like <laughs> cookbooks and books about food. Um, but I had mentioned Ruth Reichel a little bit earlier, um, and she is one of my favorite authors. So my recommendations for food fiction are Save Me the Plums, Garlic and Sapphires, and Comfort Me with, Comfort Me with Apples, which are the three nonfiction books. And they kind of cover her um, transition from, like, food-adjacent person to food personality um, she lived in the Bay Area and became a food critic, um, and each book is about a different stage in her career as, you know, to a, a full-on food personality um, and nationally and internationally recognized person. She worked um, closely with Alice Waters in the French Laundry. Um, she was a—my my favorite part is when she is um, a food critic in New York and she actually starts wearing disguises to go to <laughs> restaurants because everyone starts recognizing her. Um, so she would she would put all kinds of crazy clothes on and everything and sneak into restaurants. But then, you know, once you show up a couple times because you're supposed to order the whole menu and, like, really get in deep. Like, when someone walks in in sunglasses and a scarf and orders the entire menu over the course of three days, you're like, okay. People are still finding her out and, and treating her differently and everything. Um, but it's really enjoyable. Then she became the uh, the editor for Gourmet Magazine, which is now shuttered, um, which I actually saw um, somebody, was was it um, Janice that did a presentation about Gourmet Magazine? Yes, we had an exhibit some years ago. And actually, yes, I believe that the lecture is still accessible through the Special Collections website. I think it's you right on the front JPL page because I, I did watch that. Um, but it's it's um, an exciting story, and it's unfortunate that we lost um, Gourmet Magazine. But she wrote a fiction book about the shuttering of a magazine and then the main character, which is semi-autobiographical um, kind of transitioning away from this magazine and that was uh delicious was the title of that one hmm. um so she has a really cool catalog of of books and experiences and definitely recommend ruth reichel she's one of my favorite people how about you james um well i went with a a manga called food wars 
Um, just because, yes. well, okay, I got to preface this. It's a, it's a rather racy. It is. Rather racy. They, re- they really enjoy food. They really, <laughs> really do. But the fascinating thing about this manga is I think not every recipe, but almost all the recipes. Okay, so for those that don't know about it, uh, Food Wars is a manga that takes place in Japan, and it's a cooking school, and it's about this kid going through culinary art school, right? And they have to challenge with these these ex, uh, extravagant dishes, and you can make a solid majority of all of these dishes that are mm-hmm. featured in the manga. And I'm like, that's pretty hilarious. Yeah, I uh, when the anime version of Food Wars came out, I kept up with it for like the first two seasons or so, and I did like a cook along to a couple episodes, and I think I did three of them. I can't remember what the third was, but Two two of them were notable in my mind and turned out just amazing. What was one of them? Um, so the first one that I made was uh, chaliapin steak don, ah. um, which is like chaliapin steak is um, like a cheap cut of steak. Um, and you basically chop a ton of onions, pack the onions around the steak, and like the enzymes in the onion break down the steak and make this cheap cut of meat really tender and nice and good. And then you put that over um, rice with umeboshi plum in it, which is like a pickled, salty kind of plum. And you put the steak and a giant pile of onions on top, and you'll smell for days. But it is <laughs> it is one of my, my favorite things that I've ever made. I do that with a lot. Like, anytime I play a video game and there's cooking in the game or I watch TV, like, I own cookbooks from Bob's Burgers. I own cookbooks from Final Fantasy XIV. I have the World of Warcraft cookbook. I have, like, all these video game and TV show cookbooks, and it's it's one of my favorite things. That's awesome. Um, so, Julie, these are just some of the dishes that are featured in this, and, and I just want you to tell me if you think you would try it or not. You ready? Okay. So... The first one is called a four-layered semi-fredo. So it's like a half-frozen Italian-inspired dessert. I mean, I'll try anything. <laughs> <laughs> this one sounds really interesting. It's called the su- uh, Sumiri Karaage Roll, which is fried meat in like a rice pancake, like a Ban Ziao wrap. Mm-hmm. And it looks like a, a Japanese – or I'm sorry, a Chinese um, – just wrapped on to go, like just fried meat in a wrap. You can never go wrong with that. I mean, it sounds delicious. Yeah, I mean, I'll <laughs> yeah. go for it. <laughs> and karage is actually Japanese. Karage, the the wrap is, is I don't know where the wrap comes from, but karage, I have made that one too. And the trick to that one, like in the show, they're like, oh, he's using potato starch. Where'd he come? Like potato <laughs> starch makes fried food so unbelievably crispy. Like toss out everything else. If you're frying, if you're deep frying chicken, like try potato starch, it puffs up and it's crunchy and amazing. And I don't use anything. I mean, I rarely fry anything, but whenever I do, I always use potato starch on it, which I learned from the show. Interesting. Um, okay, so this one's interesting. It's called transforming for akake rice. <laughs> so basically, it's you. You make a, a meat gelatin, you cube up the meat gelatin, and then when you you fry up an egg and some rice and then as the egg is super hot you put the gelatin in there and apparently the gelatin melts and it makes it amazing hmm. i don't know it's how like a gravy if, yeah, that's what i was thinking it'd be like a gravy but i was like i don't the, the gelatin part is what it, yeah. it's me <laughs> i don't know if i could do that one um this one sounds very interesting eggs benedict don 
So it's just basically a, a um, an Asian take on Eggs Benedict. Yeah, it's just an egg, egg Eggs Benedict bowl. Don and Japanese's bowl. Yeah. Um. So we had like <laughs> there was another bowl that we just talked about the chalupa uh, and steak don and yeah. the Eggs Benedict. Don. And then curry lobster rice with cognac. That sounds fancy AF. It sounds very fancy, yes. Yeah, right? of all the recipes on here, that's the one that probably sounds the but, best. But the fact that that kind of recipe is in a, a manga and an anime that is geared towards, like, I would say a younger crowd, like, oh, yeah. like a it's, like teenage crowd for it's sure. It's fully on, like, a teenage boy action anime, but it's about, yeah. it's about cooking. And, and they take all this, like, you could be watching, like, Digimon or Dragon Ball Z right. or something, and they just like ham it up so much. Ham it up. It's a food <laughs> episode. Um, <laughs> they just like ham it up so much and make it so actiony. But they're like, you know, like the the salt guy where yeah. he sprinkles. Like yeah. they just make it so dramatic. It's it's funny. Um, and then finally, apple risotto. I I I would try that for sure. I've never well. Yeah. I'm bad at making risotto. Well, I was just about to say, like, if someone else makes it, what kind of apple would you use with that risotto, though? Because they didn't really state what kind of apple to use. I'm assuming not a super sweet one. I'm actually allergic to apples. (laughs) I eat them, but they make my gums swell up. (laughs) We're learning a lot today. I know it's an exciting episode. (laughs) It's an exciting. If if I cook them, like if they're cooked apples, I don't have a reaction to it. But raw apples like make my mouth swell. I guess you'd have to experiment with the apple, deciding whether you wanted it to sort of get mushy and blend into the rice, or if you wanted something that was going to stay very firm, like a Granny Smith, where you'd have like little chunks of apple in your rice. That's a good point. Good point. And risotto cooks so long, like I'd imagine like a lot of apples a lot of would just like dissolve mush, into nothing yeah. after a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Julie, tell us about some other interesting items that you have in the collection. What's your favorite? What's weird? What's unusual? What's popular? I mean, it's a it's a huge collection you've got there. It is several thousand cookbooks and uh, two hundred boxes of advertising ephemera. Um, so I, I always have trouble choosing a real favorite, right? But I have I have categories of favorites. Um, <laughs> And the advertising ephemera is something that that I love that fascinates me. So ephemera in library terms is basically little paper things that weren't meant to last long. So okay. like you mentioned jello earlier and gelatin. Um, so like the um, there's so many advertising pieces promoting jello from the early to the mid 20th century. Of course, we all think of gelatin in the mid 20th century and all those jello salads. Uh, but there's fascinating <laughs> things. Like in the early 20th century, they had this whole picture book series where there was jello girl um traveling around the world so we have like the jello girl in greece <laughs> and <laughs> on every page as she's visiting various um important archaeological sites in greece we also have a little recipe for a gelatin mold that can go along with that with that page um which i find really fascinating and of course you also see the development of different food technologies and the industrialization of the food system documented through this advertising ephemera, like the advent of um, citrus everywhere, right? And Florida orange juice and how that became just this thing that was just a part of the American breakfast for a few decades. Um, and so I think those are just really fascinating little glimpses into into parts of our, our culinary past. Um, we also have a collection of tin cookie cutters, which is unusual. Mm. Um, 
In fact, I even have some gingerbread in that collection. So we mostly try not to have a lot of food in our food <laughs> Yeah, <here. laughs> food, food seems like a bad thing to keep in an archive. But I do actually have gingerbread. Huh. Um, is it like is it yeah. like a fruit cake where it's gonna last for pretty much, like hard oh, tack hard tack at this yeah. point nothing nothing's <laughs> happening to that <laughs> it's just in a box it's gonna be in a box for for a few hundred years and it's gonna be just fine um, yeah um, and I also love our our manuscript cookbooks the handwritten cookbooks um, so one of the older older handwritten cookbooks we have in our collection well, the oldest one is from 1698 wow, and wow. so that's one of those moments where you're just holding this this book from hundreds of years ago and the ink has iron in it so the iron is actually eating through the page and so it's this gorgeous calligraphy that's eating through this page and it's um it's a really striking moment um most of the recipes in that book are for things like confectionery or pickling there's pickling cucumbers um, pickling man- mangoes. Um, now, I don't actually know if that actually meant pickling mangoes or if mango was one of those terms that maybe was applied to a broader category in the yeah, past. Yeah. Like, I have to, have to research um, and confectionery and the like. But then also, um, when you get into the 19th and the 20th century, you get a combination of kind of like people scrapbooking recipes out of newspapers and magazines and then also handwriting. Like, this is, uh, you know, Mrs. Smith's recipe for fruitcake. And you get just these images of these social networks and also the people that the composers imagined they wanted to be. Like they didn't necessarily cook all of these recipes they were writing down or clipping out of, of newspapers, but they were recipes that they could imagine themselves making. And so I would find that really fascinating. Very cool. Yeah, yeah I, I think you had mentioned to me that um, you had like a big collection of like church cookbooks and community group things. And I think that's, that's an interesting way to see like a very local and regional identity almost is by what kind of things that they have in the cookbook. Do they have alcohol <laughs> in the cookbook or not? Like that'll, that'll tell you a lot about the time and the place and the people. <laughs> well, yes, I actually, so there's a, um, a charity cookbook from the Oakland Women's City Club from the Depre- from the um, Prohibition era, which has the recipe for booze cake in it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> instead of alcohol, it tells you to you soak raisins in hot water and use that. So oh. very curious to know how many people did use the raisins versus how many people maybe possibly had some medicinal alcohol around they were using for that booze cake. <laughs> <laughs> I do. It's funny. I I watch a lot of Great British Bake Off. But, you know, that's what kicked off this whole thing. I mean, I am a culinary school dropout, so I've always <laughs> I've always liked food. Um, but just over over quarantine, I started watching Great British Bake Off and they use so much alcohol in that show. And I never use alcohol when I bake. And I'm like, maybe maybe, maybe I should. should use a little bit more when I bake because people seem to like that. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next potluck. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll bring something into work, but we'll have to eat it as, you know after after hours (laughs) can't eat it here take it home all right so julie um did we send you the rapid fire questions you did okay good um because we like to do this little thing uh where we just list a bunch of questions off and and we try to do it rapid fire as quickly as we can um so we're gonna go ahead and get right on into it so starting off your favorite food to eat fresh homemade bread your favorite food to cook? Uh, stew of all kinds. Oh, I made both those things over the weekend, actually. <laughs> Good choices. Um, favorite cookbook? 
So this is a weird one. Um, I was a vegetarian in my early 20s, and my favorite cookbook is Vegan Planet. And I am no longer vegetarian, but I continue to use it a lot and sometimes de-veganize the recipes. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, favorite restaurant? Uh, Yachts is a Japanese restaurant here in Ann Arbor. Okay. Uh, favorite drink? Hot tea. It can be alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> hot tea, non-alcoholic. Okay. Hot tea. <laughs> uh, your <fa> With oat milk. <laughs> Your favorite dish or cooking implement? Uh, my Instant Pot. It's great for stew. <laughs> oh, yeah. There you go. Um, favorite food celebrity? Oh, wait. Favorite food celebrity. Oh, that one was missed. I yeah, I think, I think we edited it. I think we edited it. I love Alton Brown. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. same. He's yeah. my favorite. We both, we've talked about Alton Brown a lot together. Um, favorite fast food chain? Little Caesars, if it counts. Yeah, that, yeah. For sure. Hot and ready. $5. Well, $6 now, but right out the door. All right. Last one. How do you organize your bookcase? By title, by author, or by color? I use all my organizational skills at work. At home, I do not organize things. Yes. Therefore, my cookbooks are loosely organized by the room in which I may use them. So my cookbooks are in the dining room and everything else is fair game. I, I appreciate you saying that because I get called out on the fact that I just throw all my books on my shelf, too. <laughs> I'm, I'm the only one who has a system, choice. huh? All right. Good to know. I'm the only one here who has a system. Fair enough. The only librarian that has a system. No, I'm fine. a librarian at work. I'm a mess at home. <laughs> yeah. let's put that on a t-shirt uh, all right well julie thank you so much for joining us yes, today thank you julie. this was a lot of fun a lot of uh interesting things about cookbooks here um yes and, thank you so much and thank you all for listening uh join us next time as we discuss this sounds boring but it's gonna be interesting shelf, shelf organization, organization. <laughs> we're librarians we have to um, we would like to thank Orion Neighborhood Television, ONTV, for providing the recording studios for We Blame Our Shelves. You can find episodes of We Blame Our Shelves at our website, orionlibrary.org. If you have questions, comments, or would like to give us a topic to discuss, email us at podcast at orionlibrary.org. And you can check out everything for your shelf at your local library. Please support them by any means you are able. Until next time, I'm James Pugh. And I'm Dan Major. We'll see ya. Bye.